Welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about media, politics, and the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind, at Dan Hind on Twitter, and I'm joined as ever by my colleague Tom Mills. Hello. Tom, what's your Twitter handle? I am TA underscore Mills on Twitter. You should be following me by now already, but, you know, welcome if you're a new follower. And we're joined by two very learned guests this week who are going to introduce themselves now. Nick, tell me who you are. Uh, yeah, so I'm Nick Cernick. I'm a lecturer in digital economy at King's College London. And Laurie? I'm Laurie Laybourne Langton, and I'm a senior research fellow at IPPR. And you guys are both on Twitter, and with a minimum of fuss, I think our listeners will be able to find them. Now, eagle-eared listeners will have noticed that it's an all-male lineup this week. Um, which is not something that we aim to do every week. So you'll have to bear with us and bear in mind that sometimes that's how things shake out. Now, we're going to be talking this week about platforms and specifically big media, big data platforms and how they're changing the media landscape and what reformers or would-be reformers need to be thinking about when they think about the emerging media landscape. Nick, I wanted to start with you just to, to get our listeners to have a, a very kind of quick overview of what we mean when we talk about a platform. Yeah, so I wrote a book on this in part because I was so confused by what people were talking about uh, when they discussed platforms. So it seemed to mean almost uh, a number of different things, and I was always a bit confused by it. Uh, but the definition, the sort of way in which I approach platforms is to think of them as primarily intermediaries. So they're business models which are premised upon bringing together different groups, uh, allowing different groups to interact. Uh, so, for example, something like Facebook is a platform. Uh, we can imagine it bringing together advertisers, users, companies, app developers, all of these groups are coming together on Facebook as a platform and interacting in various ways. Uh, the other sort of aspect about platforms is that they also act as an infrastructure to build stuff off of. So again, thinking about uh, Facebook, it's a sort of infrastructure to allow you to build a profile page, you can build a company page, you can build software on top of it. So this is what sort of contemporary digital platforms are, is intermediaries and infrastructures. And um, we were going to be focusing, I guess, on uh, media platforms because that's the nature of uh, this podcast. But there are different type, other types of platforms. So you maybe sort of talk through the different um, types that you describe in the book. Yeah, so uh, primarily media platforms tend to be advertising-based. Um, the way I sort of develop the different types of platforms is to think about where does the revenue primarily come from? Uh, and I think in a sort of classic Marxist framework, this is the, one of the key questions about thinking through the nature of a business is where does its money come from? Uh, is it sustainable? What does it have to do in order to generate that money? Uh, and what is sort of the nature of exploitation that may be involved in that business model? So most media ones tend to be based upon advertising, which I think we'll discuss uh, throughout this podcast. Uh, but we also have something like Uber, for instance, which isn't premised upon advertising, but it's instead premised upon pushing all of its costs outside of its business model. So rather than hiring employees, it has uh, quote-unquote independent contractors that are associated. Uh, it also pushes out fuel costs and legal costs and maintenance costs for, uh, for the car. So all these things get pushed to the side, and it basically reduces the cost for the business. Uh, it turns out, though, Uber is still not profitable by any any uh, stretch of the imagination. Uh, they lost about $3 billion in 2016. And they lost about $4 billion last year. So again, this sort of business model doesn't seem to be very sustainable uh, at the moment. And it becomes sustainable mainly by reaching um, something close to a monopoly in, in, in a given market. That is the, yeah, that's the basic strategy, I would say. Uh, it's the classic sort of you know '90s dot com boom approach, which is grow big, grow fast, and then make money. Uh, and this is the sort of promise that you know led to this immense amount of hype back in the 1990s and the eventual uh, bust of the uh, dot com bubble. Um, 
it seems to be repeating itself today. And I think Uber is probably the paradigmatic example here, uh, a company which is promising its investors that in the future it will have a monopoly position where it can make a huge amount of money. Uh, but at the present moment, it doesn't seem to be able to do anything like that. That's really interesting. So they so they feel a lot like the kinds of sort of pets.com or like the boo.com or the sort of classic kind of flare-outs that we had in the in the early years of this century? I think so. It wouldn't surprise me to see a number of companies, um, big-name companies, sort of fall apart within five years or so. Uh, we've already seen a lot of the sort of lower-level companies uh, basically finding that these models aren't sustainable in any way, uh, and a number of them have basically packed up and, and gone out of business. Uh, and I think it is going to catch up to the larger ones as well. I mean, we're already seeing, aren't we, things like Airbnb, they're, they're, they're talking about building hotels now. <laughs> I mean, it seems to be stepping away from the idea of being a, a pure platform. Um, but where the platform model, I mean, you talk, the book is a, is a, is a brilliant introduction to this, and it's a, it's a real sort of antidote to a lot of lazy thinking about, about platforms, platform capitalism, um, which I think is published by, is it Polity or... Yeah, yeah, it's probably. And I do I recommend that our readers check check it out. And you talk there about industrial platforms, which which is another very interesting model. But where this idea of of getting big fast and achieving a monopolistic position has seemed to have worked, at least for the time being, is in these data uh, advertising led platforms. And I'm thinking particularly of Google and the sort of Facebook, Instagram ecosystem, um, mm -hmm. because I guess increasingly. Facebook and Instagram seem to be um, operating as a sort of hybrid monster. Um, can we talk a bit about them and, and look in a bit more detail at their their business model? Um, and you know, Laurie, do I mean what, how would you see? I mean, what do you think is distinctive about Facebook as a as a sort of um, a media platform when compared to its sort of print and broadcast predecessors? I think that it's driven by fundamentally by a business model that's about extracting as much data as possible, analysing that data, and then using the outcomes of that analysis process to then sell ever more effective advertising to advertising agencies. And therefore, how it deals with media and any content that's produced or placed on the platform is geared around that incentive structure within the business. So it will, for example, and this is becoming a bigger and bigger thing now that we're seeing in the media, it, it will channel people towards behaviours that grab their attention and will effectively uh, make them addicted to doing that. Um, and therefore, that provides an enormous uh, amount of interesting incentives for people in the media or those wishing to win the battle to grab users' attention on the platform. Um, the sensationalization of, uh, of the news content itself, of the headlines, of that content, of the kind of topics that it's dealing with. And the hard, dirtier end of that that we're learning more and more about is um, the kind of stories that are then placed within sensitive potentially sensitive political moments, including elections. So obviously what we're seeing with uh, more and more revelations about um, the kind of content and the effect that it's had around the American election, uh, and then with Brexit as well, shows the real hard end of where that incentive structure for both the business is, is channeled by, it's where it's get its revenues from, as Nick says, you should always look for that, is then having this enormous effect on those who are gaining access to this. Now, we've always seen the revenue model of um, organizations, entities in the media world has driven the kind of content that's being pushed to those who are looking at it. But at the very least, this is disrupting that old order and it's doing it in ways at a pace at a scale that we arguably just haven't seen since, I mean, my goodness, paradigm shift moments in uh, the way we access information. So the, the printing press or other big moments like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it seems to me that there is a clear precursor of some of the political economy of um, an organization like Facebook in terms of you know, uh, selling readers to advertisers on a, on a mass scale where you see in the political economy of, um, I mean, particularly, I think, the tabloid um, tabloid readers in terms of the kind of uh, relationships between news values and that kind of 
long-standing critique of uh, sensationalism and an erosion of serious journalism that, that went with the rise of the so-called new journalism, you know, in the early 20th century, the development of, you know, the Daily Mail and, and later the Sun. Um, but I suppose uh, going back to the point about what's distinctive as, as a platform, it was, those were nevertheless publishers, right, which seems to be at the level of political economy the big distinction. Is that right, Nick? Yeah, I think that is true. I think um, the fact that Facebook and Google are more like distributors than publishers um, means they're playing a distinct role within the political economy of this situation. I think one of the other major differences as well is the, uh, the focus on metrics to an unprecedented degree and the way in which particular metrics end up driving uh, the content that's being produced, the audiences, and drives the entire sort of back end of the advertising world that's um, um, uh, sort of, you know, producing revenue for these companies. I think that that's going to an intense new degree. I think it's also uh, very rapid changing. So I'll give one example, which is when Facebook makes a change to its news feed, uh, ostensibly in a response to, say, fake news and trying to, you know, up the quality of content on a news feed, the results for publishers are immediate. And what you see is that a lot of publishers are finding that when Facebook makes a change to its news feed, they can lose up to 60 or 80 percent of their audience, their traffic, in a single day. And I think that sort of situation is unprecedented from anything else we've seen in, uh, in media history. Yeah, so, I mean, in that respect... The, the the idea that Facebook is uh, isn't part of uh, the, the journalistic um, world of making judgments as newsworthiness or or not doesn't doesn't seem to hold up in the sense that they are running the particular algorithms. I noticed that in the um, Endelman Trust Barometer, which is this kind of annual survey that gets done with people, there seems to be um, increasing concern now about. Uh, the effects that social media is having. There's 62% um, said they worried about um, media companies selling their personal data without their knowledge. 64% said that they've agreed that these companies weren't um, regulated enough. Um, before we get on to the question of uh, accountability and alternatives, Laurie, I wanted to go back to your point um, about the scale and um, the extent of the monitoring and the data extraction that's going on. Um, I mean, we can't really imagine these companies operating and respecting privacy, can we? I mean, it's, fun it's, it's fundamental, really, to what to their business models. Well, exactly. And it, in some respects, want to abolish it completely, at least in how private your relationship is with them. Um, so extracting as much data from as many sources across as large a population as possible remain, will always remain, at least in the current configuration, the business model. Um, and that's the extent to which that is happening or going to happen is, uh, we use hyperbole all the time, but is extraordinary. Um, increasingly now, for example, let's take healthcare. So you've got all these wearable devices that are, that are downloading as much data as possible on your, your heart rate, on the exercise you're doing, the number of steps you're doing, and they can infer from a lot of that and other services on your phone where you are and where you're moving and how you do things. That provides a really interesting personal data set on your health. Um, aggregating that to an enormous extent and then potentially pairing it or complementing it with existing health data that you get from health services, from hospitals, et cetera. That provides a data set that you can do um, a lot of analytics on. And you could across these, I mean, these data sets are enormous, be able to infer certain health behaviors across populations. So what does that mean in reality? Well, it means that um, these companies could be across populations being able to work out or be better at diagnosing certain conditions than our existing diagnostic uh, technologies that we have in hospitals or GP surgery or something like that, which is placing them at the forefront of providing healthcare. And this is great for them because it opens up another front in which they can get more data and they can analyze that data and can continue to dominate. But it also puts into their wider pool of data, which goes into their existing business model for advertising revenues, etc. Apple uh, find themselves in this particular sector at the forefront because things like the Apple Watch are increasingly adopted by people 
And they are hoping to angle or presumably are hoping to angle themselves to a place where healthcare providers, let's say in America, say, actually, do you know what? Um, this device that everyone's rowing around their wrist works really well. We're maybe even going to subsidize or prescribe um, patients that they should use these devices. And so Apple wins a, it becomes the gatekeeper for a lot of healthcare services. And you see this happening over many sectors and many areas of life. And they're all competing these main platforms to become the person you use to gain access to those services. How extraordinary. Yeah, how interesting. And this this has kind of clear implications for how we think about moving to a, a notion of a of a public network or a public platform, which we'll come to later. What I wanted to do with you to now is to talk a little bit about the current, as it were, the current regulatory moment. As you mentioned, Laurie, the um, the victory of Trump in. Uh, in the, the election last year, um, really kind of crystallised the problem that Facebook has in particular, where it's been insisting that it's an intermediary, it doesn't have it doesn't have an editorial function. And he, a couple of years ago, Zuckerberg was saying we're just a we're just a, um, uh, a conduit for publishers, and they've either, he's already moved away from that and he started talking much more in, in terms of a kind of very vague corporate social responsibility about promoting good news or promoting sound and reliable news and so on. But they're clearly coming under a great deal of pressure from politicians in the US and the UK um, in, it, as regards their, the flight away from quality, if you like. The, the, the idea that by promoting stories that are highly clickable, that, um, that drive engagement... They've been encouraging uh, an ecosystem of uh, what's you know what's called shorthand fake news. Um, I'd like to ask you guys what you make of the current sort of pushback in political terms, where it's coming from, and and what do you think what you think it's it's a kind of what the, the sort of agenda is, Nick. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a sort of weird collision between what I, I think are Mark Zuckerberg's probably genuine intention to be a good person, uh, combining that with the sort of structural necessities of existing within a capitalist system, which require that Facebook do things, uh, you know, relies upon the surveillance model. And I think a lot of the sort of challenges and the sort of the sort of uh, contradictory things that we see from Facebook are sort of an expression of that. Um, a genuine belief on the part of individuals that technology could be for good and they would like it to be good, mm -hmm. but trying to match it up with the system which would never allow them to do that and they don't sort of recognize it. What I do think is happening in part with the sort of stuff around um, changes to the news feed and sort of this attempt to battle uh, quote-unquote fake news on Facebook is, I think, partly an attempt to gain higher quality engagement on the platform. Mm -hmm. So accepting that there'll be less quantity, there'll be less, uh, less time spent necessarily on the platform, uh, but what people are doing on that platform will be more of a personal expression, it will give access to new facets of personal life, and it'll be quite useful for Facebook as a data aggregator in that way. Uh, it was interesting because their last quarterly result uh, showed that actually their user engagement in terms of quantity has gone down. And in part, this was a response to changes to uh, the types of videos that they were allowing uh, to go viral on the website. So I think that there is, I think their strategy is to go for quality over quantity at this point in time. And it'll be interesting to see how that sort of plays out and whether or not they can tailor towards this, uh, I think, increasing sense on their part that they do have a responsibility, an editorial responsibility and a curatorial responsibility uh, in a way that they've been trying to reject for years now, but it's, it's sort of being forced upon them. We're seeing, the, sorry, very quickly, Tom, we're seeing the moment Theresa May last week announced a, a review of the funding of journalism um, and it was explicitly looking at how national and local news providers could be recompensed in the digital age. We've already seen with the BBC, the BBC's been, been compelled in its new charter to give some modest amounts of money 
to local news publishers. Um, do you think that that politicians are looking at ways of compelling the digital giants to, as it were, subsidise what they see, what, what the politicians consider to be responsible journalism? Do you think that's what's going on here? Laurie, can I ask, ask you that question? I, I'm, so I'm not sure specifically in that case. I mean, I know that Facebook itself is, well, claims to be making the kind of moves that would do that anyway, particularly when it comes to local news. So the, the menu of things that they're suggesting happen, that are going to happen to their the news feed are a reduction in the percentage that is going towards news, explicitly news. And as Nick says, that as that's had a, a massive impact already on some news suppliers. As a side aside, in the so-called developing world, where the speed in which Facebook moves sometimes in changing what news is shown on the news feed actually has a massive impact on those who are providing news in these countries, to the point where many have complained that it's essentially pulling the rug from out from under a lot of these these um these new startups that are providing news in these countries and having an even greater effect than we can imagine in the so-called developed world. So that's a slight aside on the kind of impact that these changes have. Mm -hmm. But the other areas that Facebook are working on on their news feed are to provide this surveying function where you can flag how if you're familiar with a news source and then how much you trust it on a five or six point scale. And many people have complained that, you know, this is very sort of... Uh, you know, sort of low-level feedback that you're providing uh, that's not enough to really affirm whether a news source is, um, well, one, trustworthy, but two, whether it should have, whether you think it has all the other facets that make a news source worthwhile, like um, the credibility of its sources and other things. Facebook has come back and said, well, you know, it's a bit more complex than this. We we do other more targeted surveys that look at your familiarity and trust from a from a diverse range of people. Um, we also do surveys to see if things are are informative you think this you know how informative things are and they're also looking at how relevant news is to you based on your locality so this is where the local uh, local sources of news will be factored into how its news feed works and all that comes alongside the usual way that they try to understand how worthwhile pieces of content are for people so through what you click on you like how much time you spend on it whether you share or comment the really interesting thing uh, which has remained across Facebook's lifetime, is they provide little to no detail on how all those factors interrelate with each other, uh, what weighting that they're given, um, which provides us with a, a sort of astonishingly opaque idea of how they are moderating their own newsfeed. And I think this is obviously one of the reasons why politicians are beginning to weigh in. Um, it may also, though, because of the backlash that is growing against them, and we see this almost daily now in the news. And you know, we've had Unilever come out recently saying that they're they're, they're questioning whether they're going to uh, be advertising across some of these platforms. It provide potentially provides an opportunity for local news providers to jump on this bandwagon of the of the collapse or the 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 lowering of trust when it comes to these platforms to provide more trustworthy authoritative sources of news for people at least in local areas and would you would see them doing that as it were off the platform or within the platform so and this is why i have less knowledge about the technical elements of it and nick i don't know if you you know any on on this particular detail but uh, when it comes to their locality sourcing for Facebook, your sort of relevance based upon your locality. Now, apart from the fact that they're not telling us how that works, it may be that there are options there for them. And yes, it may be that they create alternative platforms. So a number of uh, at least cities or sort of local conurbations are starting to create some of these platforms. They have not many people using them and some are placed on Facebook, but they are at least some of them enjoying high levels of trust if not just amongst a small group of people. This brings us quite neatly on to the question of what a, a platform, uh, as it were, economy or ecology might look like um, that was driven not by an advertising market or the possibility of making money, but by much more of a conception of information as a public good, um, information as a, as it were as a utility um, and to start thinking about how we get away from a, a regulatory impulse or a more woke Zuckerberg 
and, and look more deeply into uh, into the sort of the, the possibilities for for public provision. Um, Nick, I know you were talking you were talking about this um, at the weekend at the um, Alternative Models of Ownership conference uh, for the Labour Party. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, ca- in what ways can and should we be thinking about going beyond regulation? Yeah, well, so I've, I've made this comment a few times, and I think I think it's useful to sort of say that a lot of the contemporary critiques of technology, and particularly things like Facebook, are actually sort of displaced critiques of capitalism. Uh, so a lot of the problems that we find with social media and these platforms are driven by the very nature of a competitive, profit-driven uh, economy. And I think that when you start to realize that you know fake, fake news and addiction to smartphones and uh, advertising that is sharing malware and the you know hijacking of people's computers for cryptocurrency mining and all sorts of things, when you start to see that as an expression of the very economic system that we have, you start to see that, well, regulations maybe aren't sufficient for solving the problems. And I think one of the core issues, really, is the question of whether or not the Internet is profitable and whether or not we're actually introducing massive distortions into it in order to make it profitable for a handful of companies. And it seems to me like that's actually the case, that fundamentally the Internet as an open medium, as a place where information wants to be free, uh, is just not subject to the sort of profit-driven nature of, of capitalist firms. So a lot of the sort of mutations and the problems that we've seen are the result of efforts to try and cram it back into that uh, that sort of area. So I think really we should be looking at how do we make the, the obvious benefits of the internet and, and social media and platforms, how do we make them sustainable in a way which doesn't have to force them against their own nature to be you know, revenue-generating mechanisms? And that's where we sort of get onto this question of, of public platforms. Uh, I'm thinking about, well, how could general taxation fund uh, these sorts of things in ways which are actively and explicitly oriented towards social goods rather than being oriented towards generating advertising revenue? I mean, do you have any kind of ballpark sense of how much it would cost to run a, a, a public network? I mean, I've seen some data on... The amount, the relatively modest amounts of programming time that went into creating the Facebook sort of operating software. Um, are we, are we, we're not talking about a massive, massive kind of ongoing expense, are we, to, to maintain um, public platforms of this kind? Well, so I think it really depends on the platform. Um, when you look at something like Uber, for instance, Uber is relatively cheap to put together. Uh, there was a um, a sort of cooperative competitor uh, that took about six months and I think a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, to build up a platform that could compete with Uber. Right. So it's relatively cheap to do that sort of thing. The problem with something like Facebook is the running costs are much higher. So in terms of uh, building up data centers, having them constantly running, uh, hiring top tier data engineers and stuff to be able to continue to improve upon it and build it and organize it and everything, it can be quite expensive. So I think we need to be uh, aware of that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, Nick, I wonder if um, what proportion of those engineers are their laborers involved in the process of monetizing the platform? To what extent do you think um, if we were to remove the profit incentive from some of these platforms, that might also remove some of the operating costs? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think I think probably at the moment it's so intimately tied up with the entire business model that it would be difficult to be able to separate those workers out from the rest of what the, the company is doing. Yeah. So it, it would be difficult to estimate, but I, I'm sure you can save some costs on that. Yeah, because I was just thinking that you know a lot of the a lot of the intellectual resources and the labour of these platforms presumably is being put. I mean, particularly with the information advertising based ones, is to do with putting people into is to do with gathering data, which allows you to like package and sell 
your consumers basically but if if you had a public platform i mean on the one hand of course you want it to work well um and 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 function effectively as a as a user-based platform but on the other hand you wouldn't have the same kinds of incentives to collect data for those other purposes i mean and sometimes uh something running effectively is undermined by the the pressure to monetize it i mean i think it likes certain websites just are just atrocious you know the ones that have like traditional advertising on i mean just stop working because of this kind of incentive to put the adverts on them and i mean obviously with platforms are in very different sort of environment where they this can sort of go on seamlessly but um i, w- I would i would imagine that public um platforms would be lower costs i, I would have thought i, w- I would I think, think so too yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not it would be hard to estimate it, but I'm, I'm sure it would be cheaper. Yeah. Uh, and again, you could also rely more on open source and you could, anything that was produced could automatically be, uh, become part of the commons. It could be open sourced itself. So any other country or group that wanted to build a similar sort of thing could use the code that you've already written to be able to, to build on top of it. Mm. So you could get that sort of sharing aspect that you don't get within capitalism. Uh, you know, under capitalism, you get, multiple different companies spending uh, huge amounts of money to do the same effort over and over and over again. Uh, so we could think about a more open commons-based approach as well. And we do see examples of this anyway in it, on the internet now and in like internet culture from the earliest point, the, uh, the, this, this alternative non-market-based model and um, open culture and the rest of it is still a big part of the internet so it's not like we need to imagine some of this stuff um in the same way as perhaps post-capitalist social relations traditionally on the left mm-hmm. yeah it's exactly a, it's also true I mean, we have a we have a very good working precedent from an earlier media regime where the bbc was a world leader in developing technical standards um, for broadcasting and sharing them around the world um so we you know as you say within a, within a, within a, the context of public provision you don't have to be constantly enclosing and duplicating technologies or, or methods in order to own them exclusively. Um, and in order to develop the kinds of secrecy that, that can then command premium prices. Mm. Um, so let's talk a bit then about what, you know, what are the positive benefits of a, of a, of a public approach to the platform? Laurie, tell me, tell me why we should... Why, why don't we just? Why aren't we just happy for Mark to be wealthy? I well, God, yeah, I wish him, wish him all the very best, and he can buy more and more of those uh, all the t-shirts that he has, the same one all the time. <laughs> <and he> can, <laughs> oh, good luck. So, I I think your point about the BBC is really interesting, right? And and this this is we're we're placed in a pretty interesting situation in Britain, in particular, because of the existing institutional environment that we have inherited from earlier generations and in this way i think we need to disaggregate slightly by sector as much as you can here um and i'm doing this in a very crude way but um the sector of the of the all-encompassing social media platform let's put that aside for a second let's look at other sectors in which these platforms are increasingly penetrating into whether they are those massive digital advertising ones or not so um, I've done quite a bit of work at, at looking at this in, in transport, where we see Uber emerging, and increasingly looking at this happening in healthcare. Now, let's take transport, for example. Um, in London, the regulator, but also supplier of certain services, Transport for London, was arguably caught on the back foot, and Uber has managed to penetrate its way into the transport mix in London, and there's the, the big hoo-ha and trouble that it's faced with now. We anticipate that the next development be aggregating these services so we kind of already get this on google maps because you can go on there and see how to get to apb it shows you all the different transport options what if you applied your travel card to that situation so the jargon this is mobility as a service and you'd have a pretty powerful platform right there because you'd wake up in the morning and you'd say right i need to get from north london to south london and the optimal way dependent on a number of factors i don't know price time air pollution how much exercise i get it will work out for you and then if you use any public or private transport on there, it just charges based on your monthly allowance that you use, like your phone contract or whatever. Now, um, there is, well, there are reasons and barriers there, but there is nothing 
in theory that should mean that transport for London shouldn't create that platform. Um, we see a similar thing in healthcare as well. Right now, DeepMind, that has now been bought by Google, the AI company, is taking enormous amounts of NHS data uh, from individual NHS entities and using those to pump into their machine learning facilities and come up with interesting products that they give to clinicians. Um, they will presumably have total control over those products to buy or sell them and will, if trends continue, position themselves as a, a potentially a monopoly provider of the real big data health tools of the future. But again, there's no reason in theory why the NHS can't say, okay, you can use these data sets, which there are hardly any of them like that in the world, and you're going to get loads of learnings and your AI is going to get better and you make some interesting products. You can take those learnings abroad, but in the UK, we own those products and they will be public sector things. So I think we need to make sure on the sector by sector basis, we're thinking of how the public can step in and already create alternatives or competition in its advantageous position. And of course, in the media realm, you have the BBC. And an interesting thought experiment is if uh, the World Service has provided a public good, arguably, to countries across the world and in the, in, in the UK as well, what would a digital fully participatory version of that be and how would it improve the global the global public good as well as just that in Britain? Mm -hmm. What do we see as being the the major obstacles to actually achieving this? So if it is uh, viable, presumably there are technological issues, there's issues to do with uh, resources. First of all, where what's what's to both of your sense um, of of where we are on this um, in the UK particularly, um, Nick? Where, where 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 what's your sense of where the Labour Party are? First of all, uh, well, I think we're very much at the beginning of the conversation at the moment. Uh, I think that. A lot of these issues are more open questions than answers so far. Uh, I think Laurie's absolutely right that you need to look at it on a sector by sector basis. I don't think there is any sort of universal approach to bringing a platform into public ownership, um, in, in large part because these things are, there's different scalar levels. So you've got some which are virtually global, uh, you've got others which are much more locally based. Uh, so you think about, well, how do you use, at the highest scale here, how do we use the nation state to bring it under power a global platform? Uh, and I think there's sort of lots of un uh, unanswered sort of questions there. Uh, another sort of major challenge to think about is how do we keep, um, how do we keep our public data separate from the surveillance state? So how do we keep it away from GCHQ, uh, the NSA, uh, how do we build essentially the, the legal restrictions which would prevent government from immediately spying on any sort of public platform, <laughs> uh, but also the, the technical limitations? So I think we can build technical firewalls between these areas, but this requires a lot of work to do as well. So I think that's one thing we need to think about. Otherwise, we run the risk of like China's social credit system. Uh, where basically all this public data is just fed into, you know, a government rating system, which then determines the rest of your life sort of thing. So those are big challenges that we're only just starting to think about. But I think these sorts of conversations are uh, how we begin that. That's yeah. interesting. So you, because a lot of the comment around this is, is predicated on the idea that we can kind of stumble through with something resembling liberal capitalism in the digital era. But you see things much more in terms of socialism or barbarism, right? I mean, either, <laughs> either we get the hang of this and exert meaningful public control over the data, or as you say, we'll, you know, from cradle to grave, our life chances will be determined, um, you know, behind the scenes. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think that the, the nature of power and the nature of control and manipulation that the largest platforms are gaining puts them on, on a similar sort of level to states in terms of their political influence and their, their, their political role in social life. Uh, and I think that's only going to get more and more so the case. Uh, so I do think that that needs to be recognized. I also think the sort of liberal approach, which is to argue for competition, 
is not sufficient as an answer here. I think that the idea of sort of breaking up these companies and you'll have you know good market competition between everything, I don't think that holds because these these industries, these platforms are natural monopolies. The very nature of their business model is to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and block off other competitors. So when you look at history, what we see happening is a monopoly like MySpace comes along, mm -hmm. uh, dominates social media, and it gets knocked off by another monopoly, Facebook. Mm -hmm. So I think this is what we have to recognize is that competition is not possible here. Uh, we need to be thinking about how we bring them under some sort of public control uh, in order to ensure that we have um, some sort of say over it. Well, this brings us very neatly on to what history will call the Aronovich question. Um, on Twitter, um, on Sunday, noted Times commentator, uh, David, a friend of the show, David Aronovich, um, he's the only person, by the way, so far, who's accused me of virtue signaling. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's a proud boast I can make. Um, on Sunday, he was reviewing the coverage, I guess, of the Alternative Models of Ownership conference that, that Labour Party had on Saturday. And he tweeted, what does democratic control by workers and consumers actually mean? Consumer Soviets elected by mass meetings of passengers and gas customers? Question mark. Now, this is, this is part of a genre of questions being asked by political journalists which you would have might have thought political journalists would be interested in answering themselves. Um, but it is an interesting question. Where we talk about public networks, how do we start to think about what public governance and oversight actually looks like? Mm -hmm. um, because when you look at very large institutions which are at least nominally mutual in nature, so you think of large building societies like Nationwide or um, the consumer co-ops, the amount of leverage or, or insight any individual member or um, customer member or whatever you want to call them has over the inner workings of the institution, it's almost sort of homeopathically diluted. So what does it mean to talk about a, a public network? How would that differ in, in, in real terms from a, a corporate controlled network? Laurie, I'm going to ask you that question. This is where the work on the future of the BBC is so important because uh, it's not only important because it's about how we're providing ownership and the public voice within the media as these platforms tear through every part of our lives. Um, it's also important because it takes us down that thought experiment of, okay, monolithic, bureaucratic public service. What would a modern version of that look like? that respects the kind of things that we would demand of the BBC, but how do we reform it? So the, the current work that both of you are doing on how we uh, provide much more local inputs, how we're devolving a lot of decision-making and input into uh, what kind of services and the editorial approach of the BBC, I think is where that, that's a rich vein of thinking that will provide us with a lot of those answers. Um, for the massive platforms like Facebook and the other major digital monopolists. Again, I would say in other areas, it does differ sector by sector. So to take that transport example again, or the health example, mm -hmm. the answer to David's question is, well, we, we already have these things. Go, go and look at Transport for London. You remember that. And go and look at the National Health Service. These are areas that increasingly those parts of our economy and society are becoming um, platformatized, for want of a better phrase. And we already have uh, interesting working models that in the first approximation um, provide a different direction for these to develop. And then the question for us is how, as, that, as, as the public steps in in its existing model, we can reform those model, models of the public to provide a much more participatory direction that works on a local level, as well as providing the economies of scale that the centre provides. Nick, what, what, what would you, what would, how would you respond to that, um, that question of, of what, you know, what publicness looks like in the context of, a, of particularly of a platform economy? 
Yeah, I mean, so institutional design is not really my forte. Um, but I, By the way, I don't think it is anyone's, by the way. I don't think <laughs> the English have long since given up on that. Not um, David Aronovich's either. <laughs> yeah, certainly not David's. Um, but... Um, yeah, no, that's a that's a fair fair, fair sort of pr- sort of caveat. Yeah, I mean, so I, I do think there's interesting um, experimental sort of thought processes going on with this this effort to buy Twitter, for instance, uh, and I think that uh, you know the question of the public if the public is not just immediately seen as the national citizenry, but is instead constituted through various other means. Uh, then we can start to see the public of a platform as being a much more distributed global entity than we typically tend to think of it. Uh, And I think the Twitter program, the Twitter project of buying it by the users is an interesting sort of expression of that, where we can imagine a sort of globally distributed group of people who are willing to purchase Twitter and then develop the governance mechanisms necessary to run it for the users rather than for the advertisers, which, you know, the first thing would be ban the Nazis. Uh, the second thing would be ban Trump, uh, although that might actually be in the first one. Um, but, you know, th- there's a whole lot of easy things that could be done, and we can imagine um, the users being able to come together and organize and run Twitter in a much more user-friendly way, um, which, again, I think this is sort of an interesting experiment about what might uh, what it might mean for the public to run these things. Uh, can I can, can I just say as well that the we must always remember that uh, the, the pressing need to to work out the solutions to these kind of questions that again to turn to the so-called developing world you were referring there to the kind of social credit model that we're increasingly hearing or fearing is coming from China. Um, I would be interested and are very open to uh, anyone arguing against my suspicion that as because there are big platforms uh, uh, built in China um, that are social media platforms. And increasingly, there is a bit of a, a rush to um, put these platforms into, for example, nations across Africa. And Facebook is competing, and they will be competing against the Chinese platforms. Um, I'm unclear as to how this couldn't end up in a situation where a Chinese platform integrates some kind of social credit model into what it's doing. And you get this situation where uh, in countries that don't have the data protection laws that we have in the UK, or at least do uh, while we're still in the EU, that will not lead to a situation where horrendous economic and social outcomes occur, where people can't get jobs because their social credit score isn't so good on this particular platform. Um, I read Heart of Darkness again, uh, the, the seminal Conrad novel, novel over over Christmas, and for me that is that is our modern heart of darkness, or could be our modern heart of darkness, um, and could end up happening in countries like the Congo again, where we don't have these rules. So the need is pressing to come up with these ideas. We have relatively relative to other nations have the space and the capability to answer some of these solutions that would then also help out some of those countries who are much further along the way or more exposed to some of the dangers as well. So I want to stress that the need is pressing. Nick, can you very quickly help our listeners with a sort of capsule description of what we mean when we talk about social credit or the, the, the kind of Chinese dystopia um, mm. that's emerging? Yeah, so uh, basically the idea is that um, uh, these major Chinese platforms, um, Tencent and Alibaba, uh, through this app WeChat as well, um, basically collecting as much data as the Western companies that we're all used to uh, are collecting. But on top of that, you've also got a lot of active government participation in the production of this data, the collection of it. So, you know, CCTV, surveillance mechanisms everywhere, uh, health records, financial records, and all of it sort of being tossed together into this social credit system, which is then going to be able to uh, identify each citizen, give them a ranking on the basis of, you know, do you pay your debts? Um, Have you held down jobs or do you get fired from them? Uh, Have you been caught in shady areas? All these sorts of things properly like sort of dystopian stuff. Uh, And then you can sort of base rankings uh, about the citizens on the basis of that data. Now, that being said, one thing I want to point out, which is really important, it's often missed, is that U.S. companies are already doing this. 
So companies like Experion and Equifax, which are these sort of obscure, in-the-shadow data uh, data aggregators, Mm -hmm. uh, they're the ones which are collecting all of this data, putting it all together, just the way the Chinese system is, and ranking citizens as well. Right. So in many ways, the Chinese system is actually just mirroring a lot of what the American stuff is already doing. The one difference is that the, the role of government is more substantial in the Chinese system, and the the sort of application of that to everyday issues of you know getting access to a loan or a job or a home, uh, they're supposed to be much more developed in the Chinese one um, when it properly rolls out. But I think we, should, we need to be really aware that this isn't some you know, authoritarian Chinese uh, craziness. This is something which is just building off of what we already have in the Western world's uh, surveillance system. That's fascinating. And you're, and you're, you're right to highlight the danger of uh, a kind of othering the possibility of dystopia and sort of see, seeing it as a, a problem in faraway Cathay. Um, the, the East Germans had a word, I don't know what the word was in German, but it meant life rot. And it was this. Uh, it was the process by which distance would experience their life chances being taken away, uh, in a process that was never entirely. Um, it could never be entirely sort of pinned down as being state action. Um, mm. But you wouldn't get jobs. You wouldn't. Uh, your relationships would founder. Friends would drift away. And this would all be orchestrated um, by a uh, by the by the sort of the central intelligence agencies. Um, in a way that was, you know, the very essence of paranoia, but but sort of bureaucratically induced. Um, so something like that we could imagine being automated very neatly. <laughs> um, Kafka with a black box instead of bu- uh, bureaucracy. That's right. Yeah, you know, Kafka with a, like a ball pen and and like um, ping pong tables in the in the in the lobby and um, a free free ca- cafeteria. Um, guys, thank you so much for for joining us today to talk, talk these, these issues through. Um, I would recommend everyone follows um, follows Laurie and Nick on Twitter and we will um, we'll tweet out links to them um, over the next few days so that, that'll be an opportunity for you to do that. Um, do read uh, um, Platform Capitalism uh, by Nick if you if you um, if you have a, have a chance it's a very useful primer on a lot of the issues that we've been discussing today. And keep an eye out for Laurie's work at the IPPR. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, That's it from Tom and I for this week.